Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in History podcast on the New Books in Network. Uh, we're here today with Jesse Sponholtz, Professor of History and Director of the Roots of Contemporary Issues World History Program at Washington State University in beautiful Pullman, Washington. And we're going to talk today about his penultimate book, The Convent of Vessel, The Event That Never Was and the Invention of Tradition, first published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press and out this year, 2020, in paperback. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Anna. Good to talk to you. Oh, it's great to talk to you. How are you doing? Have you wrapped up your semester? Uh, we, the, the, the last papers come in today for my, for my Roots of Contemporary Issues class and my history seminar, so I'll be grading after we finish talking today. Oh, I'm, <laughs> thank you for taking time out when you just had a pile of papers land on you. That's, well, that's fun, good. Fun to, to, to think about this book and to talk about this book with you. Okay, wonderful. All right, so let's get right into it. My first question is always about placing the current work in your academic intellectual kind of trajectory. And this one makes perfect sense. It sits right in your sweet spot of Reformation history. But I'm curious about what made you decide to take on the convent of Vessel. Yeah, it was really, um, I, did, I never intended to write, write a book about it, but it came out of my first book. Um, my first book was called The Tactics of Toleration, and it was about um, migrant communities and in, from the Low Countries who moved to a German city along the Rhine River and how they learned to coexist um, as refugees in this new in this new environment. And one of the things that was really interesting about the book is that everything that I thought about this city didn't seem to match with what everything that had been written about the city told me I should be finding. So there was a gap there. And at the same time, there was also this this mystery that I learned about in the course of that research, the mystery of this important event that um, was supposed to have happened in this city during the period that I was studying it. And I I sort of of set it aside for a long time, but I came to see after starting to write, I decided I had had enough expertise. I really had a duty to the experts in in this field who really cared about this event, a mystery about which has has been uh, existed for the last 300 years. Um, and I had a duty, given what I knew about the topic, to really um, to to really write what I knew and offer 
offer my perspective on the topic. So I started writing an essay. And as I, as I, wrote the essay, I came to realize that the, the puzzle itself, this curious little puzzle about this event that had no evidence to support it ever existing, despite the fact that it, it, was, it was rife in, in hundreds and hundreds of books and articles and, and other publications. And I decided that, that it was not only interesting in itself, um, because it would have been the, the most comprehensive meeting of, of Reformed Protestant leaders in the 16th century without any evidence that it took place. That's an interesting puzzle. But the puzzle itself was a symbol of a larger research question, which is, how is it that I could, for instance, go to study this place and all the scholarship on it is, is, is wrong? Like, what is the gap between, um, between the, the 16th century, the messy 16th century that I was, I was, I was learning about and the categorical, the, the ways in which histori- historians have described it using categories of national and, and religious um, uh, and confessional boundaries that, that I couldn't find. Uh, so I began to investigate, I began to see it as not only as a, as a mystery, but also as a kind of contribution to help understand how we can see through some of those, some of those categories um, to try to understand the 16th century on its own terms. All right. Normally at this point, I have a lot of preliminary questions about sources in historiography, but with this book, I think the best way to go at it is just jump in and tell the story, and then that will lead us there. So let's do that. Let's start with like part one, which you title Solving the Mystery. And this is really clever, right? Because doing history of this sort, like the, the sort that takes place in archives and small libraries, is often compared to solving a mystery. And historians famously love mysteries. Um, but you take that to a whole new level, though, in your introduction in which you discuss focusing on, and I'm quoting here, understanding who had the motive, means, and opportunity to create such a document. And it's a clever, it's clever because it sets up this idea that you're not, that there's something to solve here. And that's not necessarily uncovering a truth so much as, or perhaps uncovering a little bit of a crime. I think that's fascinating. But so let's start at the beginning. Can you tell our listeners about the convent of Vessel? What happened according to the story and what was the document it produced? Sure, sure. So uh, I can start with the standard historical narrative, which is that in, in November, early November 1568, um, a group of several dozen, say 50 some odd uh, leading um, Protestant reformers from the, from the Netherlands had fled from the Netherlands and met in secret in this in this town along the Rhine River to organize a, a new church um, for uh, for the for the Netherlands, and um, as as a rebellion was was taking place, and they were looking forward to implementing this new church and replacing the Catholic Church that had um, that was the dominant church at the time, and they they met together and they wrote down a, a articles for this. Uh, for this new church, and then um, in the subsequent years, they refined and they used this these these 122 articles as a kind of model for church building. And when when rebel leaders would take over the northern part of the Low Countries, which mostly are the lands that today we call the Netherlands, um, uh, they would use this th- th- these articles as a kind of model for building their church. So they're, they're, they they built and imagined their church while they were in exile as refugees, and once they had once they had freedom to um, to establish their own church, they used that model then to establish the Dutch Reformed Church, which became the state uh, church of the uh, or the official church of the Dutch Republic. 
The problem is that there's been no evidence. There's no evidence that the meeting happened, like I said before, which which creates uh, created for me a kind of mystery. Um, what is it that happened? And the, the cent the center point the centerpiece of the mystery is these these 122 articles, which which uh, uh, are are real. They were really written, and they and they were, as far as I can tell, written um, about on on November third, fifteen sixty eight. So I set about um, the, the to solve who exactly wrote them. Uh, why they wrote them and, and 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 who signed them and because there were these signatures on them on the document as well who signed them and why they signed them and um, it was really a, a, a really was a kind of mystery you know for for most of us uh, in our first books or uh, for many of our projects doing doing research can be not so much like a mystery but but like a like a painting or something where you take a look at all the evidence that exists around a topic and you, you, you paint a picture of what you see. But this was different because there was often big gaps in the evidence and the archives weren't, I couldn't just go to an archive and say, you know, what, what do I see? There's this mystery and I had to sort of ferret out mystery. And um, the, the center point, so I end up focusing the, the first part of the book on, the first chapter is on time. So the understanding the political and military events sort of on a, from a month to month and sometimes day to day basis to try to understand how, what's happening, um, when this, about when this document was produced, um, how we can understand the context of when it's, when it's taking place. And there's a kind of subtext to this, which is that two other scholars have decided that the the solution to the mystery was that the the meeting must've taken place a couple years before or a couple years after. And so I wanted to make sure that I um, addressed their, their concerns as well. And then in chapter two, then I trace down the author. And I do this by contextualizing the, the content of the articles, um, uh, what they wrote, and look at who was writing it t- this time, um, who would have these interests, and try to contextualize all of the, what, they, what they wrote. So um, in chapter three, I then look at the signers, and I, try to, I trace down um, as much as I can about all of the, the signers of this document as I can and try to figure out where they were, why they may have written. It turns out that many of them were not supporters of many of the principles in the document. So there was a kind of mystery about that as well. And then the last chapter looks at uh, the info, what happened after the document was signed. Um, and I demonstrate that um, that really the document turned out to be kind of a flop and it was tucked away in an archive and not really dealt with. So it was not actually the important document that it's been often uh, claimed to be. Okay, so there's no gathering, right? As such, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, there seems to be an initial meeting of three people um, on November third, fifteen sixty-eight. The guy who wrote it, um, I believe, is a guy named Petru Stathenus, um, who um, in, in Dutch history is uh, is is well known as a famous translator of Psalms um, from the sixteenth century. Um, but um, uh, Petrus Dathanus, um, I think, was the person who wrote it. He was, at the time, pastor in a small town in, in the Palatinate, in the mid or upper Rhine area. Um, uh, uh, and, and he seems to have been the only person that I can identify who, who actually was moving around at this time um, intentionally. Uh, and and his, the, the, the articles seem to map onto his intellectual trajectory. They seem to be promoting the kind of church he was leading in the in in this town called Frankenthal in the Palatinate, 
um, and, and not the kinds of churches that other religious leaders in, of his movement in, in Emden or in London um, or in underground in, in, in Antwerp, um, the kind of churches that they were leading. So, um, so it seems to be that he's the one that's behind writing these documents and he's, he's moving it around. So rather than having a big meeting, what, 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 what happened was that Dathenus um, takes this document and he's, he, 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 he brings it to Vesel and he has people sign it in Vesel, but not at the same time. It seems to be over the course of many months. Some of them weren't in Vesel on November 3rd. Others were, not, were never in Vesel at all, but maybe had someone signed for them in their place. Um, and after Vesel, he, he, he had run into um, somewhere between, um, between uh, um, the Palatinate and Vesel, he ran into Hermann Moded, who's another leading reformer of the time, who was, happened to be um, visiting uh, Geneva on a, on a completely separate matter. And, and, uh, but it seems to be they were traveling together and, and, and arrived in Vesel, at which point Dathenos uh, later show, returns to, uh, to Bracenthal, and the document ends up moving with Moded first to uh, Emden um, on the uh, Lower Saxon coast near the Dutch border in, in East Friesland, and then um, to London, at, to the Dutch church in London, uh, where in each place uh, you can, we, we can identify signers as having signed in those places. And, and okay. Yeah. Okay, so what's the aim? Why is what's the point of this? What what is what is the what does our author intend to happen? Yeah, yeah. So it it, it that that it, we can really help understand if we understand we can understand if we if we look at the the day to day and week to week um, political and military co- context of the moment. So it just so happens that a few weeks before the document was was signed, uh, William of Orange had just invaded. Um, the, the Low Countries, William Orange, the leader of, uh, who had just come out as the leader of the rebellion against the Habsburg authorities in the Low Countries, had just invaded with a very large army um, and not so far from, from Vesel on the, on the Dutch border. Um, he had mustered at Duisburg and then moved over in, um, uh, from in the southeast of the of, of Low Countries. And he was in, engaged in a, in a long kind of cat and mouse game with um, the Duke of Alba, who had also a large army, and the two of them, instead of instead of attacking um, instead of attacking Orange, Alba just followed um, uh, Orange's troops around. So he, he was trying to really wear them down and hunger them before he attacked them. He had far fewer troops, but they were far more experienced. So his plan was to sort of wear Orange's troops down. So this 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 war or battle that's taking place is really a kind of a long dragged out uh, battle with with very little deaths and in the meantime a lot of people who support the reformations um uh, get, are really excited that orange has a really high chance of winning and and orange had aligned himself with supporters of of religious compromise um including some people of dathanus's own church who were willing to compromise with lutherans and build a model of peaceful coexistence that would look like the peace of augsburg in the holy roman empire that allowed both Catholics and Protestants to coexist, and and some people like Dathanus were were had, had been opposed to that uh, to, to Orange's politics. So it seems that that what Dathanus is doing is trying to come up with a kind of pressure document to get as many people as possible to sign a kind of alternate model that doesn't align itself with uh, with Lutherans or the Peace of Augsburg, but instead aligns itself with um, the Palatinate, the Reformed Protestantism in the Palatinate and the Elector Palatine. Um, who is more clearly reformed. Um, and so what he's doing is sort of drafting this thing up and passing around to get as many people to sign as possible. 
one of the points that I found interesting about studying this is that uh, no one had really even thought about this, but there's a whole series of blank pages it's that, that were never signed. And it seems to be that he, he, he imagined he might get many more signatures than he ever got. Um, uh, but by the, it turns out while he's, while the doc, document's arriving in London, Orange is, does indeed run out of, uh, run out of uh, money to, to for his troops and they his troops are in retreat and they fall back into France and they end up retreating to Strasbourg. So by the early part of January 1569, Orange shows up and says, I, I didn't make it and his failure is, is, has become known. But so any, any effort to try to create a new church um, becomes kind of a, um, a moot point and the, the document is set aside it at the Dutch speaking church in in London called Austin Friars, um, and that's where it's, it lays for the next 50 years. Okay, um, and which takes us now to kind of, I think we can move forward to the kind of the afterlife of this document. Um, okay, so I think we understand why it doesn't get any play right away. There's there's no, no, no place to set out a Dutch church, really, um, at least not at home. So then... Um, let's move on to kind of part two, creating the mystery. So the first two sentences of this part, uh, the first two sentences of chapter five, up until this point, the book is focused on unraveling the mystery of the convent of Vesel. The central problem, as I described it in the introduction, has been the gap between the lack of evidence that such an event ever happened and the tenacity of the idea that an event with considerable influence must have happened. Now, starting here, you proceed to explain how the idea of this event with considerable influence was codified and cemented in public memory. So the first thing that happens is the, the manuscript reappears and historians start to write about it. So how does that happen? Like, can you comment on the implotment of the National Syn- Synod of Vessel? Yeah. Okay. The, the, it's really, the, so the story, as I said, it just, just sort of sits and is irrelevant until 1618. Now, what happens in 1618 um, uh, is that in the in the Dutch Republic in the early Dutch Republic is a deep con- constitutional conflict that's that nearly pushes the the country into war. It's a conflict that is in part political and in part religious, but critical to the the uh, critical to the conflict between so-called remonstrants and counter-remonstrants, uh, two religious uh, factions in the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, critical to that is that the, the remonstrants want to, d- want to uh, demonstrate autonomy to be able to make decisions about uh, requiring um, certain kinds of uh, theological um, pr- principles of their church, uh, uh, separate from the ch- state. And for that purpose, therefore, they have an interest in telling the story of the Dutch Reformed Church not as being connected to the state, but being founded before the state, right? Um, so... Um, in, in, it's in that context that the meeting is happening and this conflict is really, it's really tense. And while this is happening, the, the pastor of the Dutch church in London, a guy named Simeon Routink, um, he hopes to go to the meeting when the remonstrant, when the counter-remonstrants ultimately win in 1618, he hopes to go to this meeting to celebrate. He's a counter-remonstrant himself to celebrate the victory of the counter-remonstrants and of Orthodox Calvinism in, in the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, ultimately, he's not allowed to go um, because the, the uh, James, the first king of England, doesn't doesn't want to um, to suggest that any any pastor in England is is under a foreign power. But but Routing ho- hopes to go, and in pre- preparation to go, he prepares a book that explains how all the the print the the the, the organizing 
that explains the principles of all the organizing meetings of the Dutch Reformed Church. And in, it's in that context he uses for the he finds and uses this Tathanus' uh, article, the 1568 Articles, which he calls the, an, a, a, the National Synod of Basel. Now he does that because the meeting that's about to happen is being called the National Synod of Dort or Dordrecht. Um, uh, in 1618. So he, he tells a story that presents the National Synod of Dort as one of a series of six national synods. So it's part of a continuum. It's not something new, but something very old. And in his model, something so old that it goes back before the Dutch Republic was even founded. And so the National Synod of Basel, the, the way he describes it, tells a story of continuity, of the independence of, of, of Orthodox Calvinism, um, of Orthodox Reformed tradition, um, uh, within the Dutch Reformed Church um, before, uh, so as if it wasn't new in 1618, but went back to 1568. So at the time, very little people gave it much credence. Of course, as I said, there wasn't much evidence. And, and even Routink, who writes a history uh, of the Reformation a couple years later, makes no mention of this. So at the time, it actually plays very little. It, it does not play. He never goes. Very This, this, this treaty he writes, uh, Harmonia Sinodorum, um, Belgicarum doesn't uh, doesn't get much play, and um, and, and that's a kind of a minor a minor part of the story. But then it gradually um, picks up. It gets picked up by other supporters of Orthodox Reform tradition in the Dutch uh, in the Dutch Republic in later years to make similar kinds of arguments um, that that Routink was made made. It gets picked up by one of these Johannes Heisius, uh, one of these who makes copies of the original document. Um, which uh, was set, which was had been moved to the Hague, um, and he makes co- copies of it, including sending um, a copy to Germany, um, where church historians then would pick it up in Germany. And the, it was the use of this document and, and stories about the document in later years that began to the spread of the idea of the National Synod of Basel. Now, in the in the Netherlands, the idea remained a kind of national story. It became one about the Dutch national tradition that somehow uh, Calvinism was inherent to uh, the Dutch Protestant tradition and therefore to the Dutch Republic. And so therefore used by supporters of that tradition. Meanwhile, people who oppose that position tend to ignore it entirely, even even those that knew about the the, the evidence. In Germany, um, they they tend to drop the word national so that it's not the, the story they tell is not of a national synod of Wesel, but one of a synod of Wesel that they use to tell a story about their local um, their local church and the origins of their local church um, dating back to 1960 to 1568. Okay. Um, and so this takes us up basically, this takes us a little bit farther. We've got about what a century now. Right. Yeah. Um, 75 years. That, and then that chapter ends with in 1768 with the, um, the 200 year anniversary of the event, which is not a huge celebration, but there is a, um, there a history is written um, by a guy named Adrianus Ravensander. Um, who who who, um, who explains the history of this event, and that that's how I end that chapter. Yeah. All right, um, and there is a story. Uh, this intersects with the kind of the greater story of the Enlightenment as well. Okay, uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's super. That's where I was going with Sunday. So what? what, what so meanwhile, in the Dutch Republic, right, the the in radical enlightenment, the Dutch Republic is like a center of Enlightenment thinking, and, and and radical enlightenment thinking, and um, one of the ways in which um, church historians respond to the enlightenment is by developing and embracing um, histo- hist- uh, writing church histories as a way of of demonstrating the traditions 
um, that um, that uh, that they're uh, really that that they share in their in their faith. Um, and so, but the problem emerges that the more and more they need to provide um, uh, proof and and um, and evidence that the use of, of footnoting and documentation to demonstrate the the quality of their their argumentation, the harder and harder it is to demonstrate that the, the Synod of Basel, the National Synod of Basel, ever happened. And that's why Schavensander's book is so important. So what, what Schavensander does in his, in his book, and he wrote it um, on the 200-year anniversary, um, and he, he, he gives a kind of detailed argument. He's the first author um, to identify the problem with the evidence. Um, and so he openly admits the problem with the evidence, but then he goes systematically through um, the evidence to demonstrate why, in fact, um, despite the fact that there's no corroborating evidence, the, the event must have happened um, as the way in, in the way that he has long been told. Um, he he rests his argument on a series of points, some of which are, are pretty weak. Um, uh, he argued that um, uh, most of his arguments rest from our arguments from silence, right? That there was reasons for people to have maintained their silence because it was dangerous. Um, nobody wanted to threaten uh, the city of Vasel because it, it was supporting um, supporting these criminals. Um, if they had support from the Duke, it might cause an international scandal. Um, th- these arguments from silence um, don't have much to support them. He built up an argument um, that supported the idea of the uh, of the um, of the National Synod of Basel um, w- using specious arguments, um, but enough footnotes and enough documentation that he could convince skeptical readers that probably it, it, something really did happen. Um, and and so. One of the things that, that, that happens because of that, he has all the apparatus of a scholarly ap- art argument. He has footnotes and documentation, careful, uh, ca- uh, careful reading of, of, of documents, but not a sound argument. Um, but one of the things that happens as a result is many people um, then simply use his conclusion um, without uh, investigating the quality of his evidence in, in subsequent years, use his conclusion as a kind of um, an easy uh, an easy way to reinforce the idea that the event had happened all along. So rather than the the, the rigors of the in, of the Enlightenment undermining um, conclusions about the the National Synod of Basel, the rigors of the Enlightenment, the trappings of Enlightenment scholarship, ended up reinforcing the idea of it, in effect allowing it to spread into secular scholarship, um, which it did in the 19th century. So before we get to the 19th century, which is where we're going next, um, I. I find that a kind of a historically interesting, right? That's that's a little bit that's maybe irony, right? That the uh, that the, the the this apparatus kind of further cements this fictional event in history. But what else? Why do people want to believe? Well, this? you know, different people have different reasons, and that that's also part of the interesting story, both in the um, in the 18th and in the 19th century. Um, like I said, people who support Orthodox. Uh, uh, reformed orthodoxy within the Dutch reformed tradition uh, want to believe it because it tells a story of the Dutch um, the Dutch church being founded in uh, orthodox reformed principles principles supported by Dathanos and not by um, supporters of, of the kind of compromise that orange was was encouraging um, so it, it suggests that that's that that principle that those principles go go back deeper in time and of course the, the longer in time um, uh, that uh, people can find a truth oftentimes the more authority they assign that truth um, but 
also, but also, as I said before, the fact that it's, it was independent from political authority, that church leaders were able to do this and have the authority, felt like they had the authority to do this without um, any compromise with politicians, um, was useful in their rhetorical struggles against politicians who wanted to, uh, to regulate the church. Um, so in that, that's why up until the 19th, the 18th century, really, it was only those people who were really, really attached to the idea of the National Synod of Basel. Um, the other people who who uh, who discuss it, the counter remonstrants or supporters of um, or other opponents of the Orthodox Reformed, they mention it, but they tend to emphasize the the uh, the later by the in the later period they start to they mention it, but they tend to emphasize its 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 lack of importance um, and and sort of poo 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 it a bit. Um, um, and then in the 19th century, some of them actually start embracing the idea as a way of demonstrating that Calvinism or the Reformed Orthodoxy was a foreign uh, in, in, invention to, to, or to the Dutch Republic. So that Calvinism is something that's not native to, um, to, the, to the low countries, um, rather spirit of, they, they embrace the spirit of Erasmus, this Desirius Erasmus, the famous Dutch humanist. And, and they see Erasmus as in, in embodying the tolerant, uh, broad-minded uh, spirit of the Dutch culture and see um, the convent of Basel as an example of how foreign, foreign influences could threaten that. <laughs> yeah, Calvinism is a foreign invention. Is Okay. Um, that's, that's lovely. All right. So in the 19th century, though, this this gets a much broader appeal, right? That's part of the story. So there's a much broader appeal. We leave these reformation um, and, and, and reformed ministers and go into kind of a broader public appeal. What, yeah, what's happening well, there? The, the story is in part one. This is where the, Ger- the German part of the story becomes really important, but the Dutch part of the story really changes. So t- several things that are happening. One is in the, maybe three things are happening at once or simultaneously. One is the development of secular academic culture and the production of massive amounts of new, new scholarship of, high, 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 uh, of higher quality. Um, uh, and so new academic departments, uh, new universities being founded and expanded um, so, that, so that there's a whole waves of new sort of memory cultures. And in the, in the Netherlands, a lot of that memory culture centers on the founding documents of the founding of the Republic. But the other thing that's happening in the, in the Netherlands is a real culture war that's taking place. And one of the interesting things that I, that I um, uncovered, that I, I don't think I ever really thought about this before, is that one of the, the leading sets of documents from this period that historians have long used is a collection called the Werken der Marnixvereinigung, the, the works of the Marnix Society. And I'd never really thought about what that was as a, when I was doing, writing my first book, but um, I came to explore it because it was the Werken der Marnixvereinigung, the, the, last, the last of, the, of these works um, that published the, 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 the most influential copy of this, uh, of the articles of the, of the um, Synod of Wesel. And so I began exploring, uh, exploring that. And one of the things that I learned was that the guy who was most responsible for the Marxverdenking was a guy named Abraham Kauper. Now, um, it, I, I grew up in America and I was not familiar with Abraham Kauper, but once I started asking questions, I came to learn that, in fact, um, he was um, extremely important and still a touchstone of, of uh, cultural division in the, in the Netherlands because 
um, because of his views. He was a supporter of what was called neo-Calvinism in the late 19th century. And he created, created a, uh, promoted a worldview that saw the, the origins of freedom and um, in not in democracy or in the um, uh, principles of the Enlightenment, um, but rather in, um, in Calvinism. And so he began a project in the late 19th century, he began a project to promote the history of the 16th century refugees, um, reformed refugees as the kind of um, uh, founders, not only of the Dutch Republic and the Dutch Reformed Church, but of, the, of, of modern liberty itself. Um, and it was in that it was in that context that um, he f- founded the Marnix Society, named after one of these refugees who had signed who signed the document uh, that I was studying. Um, and and um, while he would later um, get involved in higher level politics and became the prime minister, his society would publish thousands and thousands of, of pages of documents, many of which have, are incredibly useful to me um, as, a, as a scholar. Um, but one of which was also the the um, the, the, the modern edition that ha- has found its way into um, so many 20th century um, books. So all of that's happening in the Netherlands. Meanwhile, in Germany, um, the, the Prussia has taken over in this part of Germany. And, and um, starting at, at the 100-year anniversary, uh, or the 300-year anniversary of the Reformation, the Prussian king starts promoting a kind of ecumenical, um, uh, Christian church that would bring all the Protestants, the Lutherans, and the, and the Reformed together under a single umbrella. And, and in places like the area around Wesel, where they had a long tradition of supporting Reformed Protestantism, they, um, they pushed back on this by celebrating their distinct traditions of, of Reformed Protestantism, their links that were closer to the Netherlands than to Berlin. And so it was these people who ended up pushing uh, for the importance of um, the Synod of Wesel um, in the 19th century in Germany, um, it, because it offered them a kind of model for how their their tradition was was not did not come from Berlin, um, but it was rooted in their their deep connection through the Rhine River and the and, and the Low Countries next door. And it was this group of people who ended up um, organizing the 300-year uh, celebration of the Convent of Wesel, which took place in Wesel in November. Uh, of 1868, uh, and it was this—it was this uh, uh, huge celebration in the city. Uh, Dutch uh, leaders of the Dutch Reformed Church, leaders from around the Rhineland uh, churches, came. There was there were parades and events, um, and, and 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 group meals. There were speeches from leading um, theologians of the day. Um, the, uh, the the King of the Netherlands. Uh, I'm sorry. The the uh, uh, King of, uh, of Prussia sent representatives. There were military orchestras. So there was this elaborate celebration of this event um, in 1868 that sort of um, is the, marks the end of, of, of the kind of romantic nationalism, both in the Netherlands and in, and in, um, and in this just sort of regionalism in the, in the Netherlands, in Germany, um, that marks the end of, of what I see as the, the high point of this, of this um, historical memory um, of the of the Synod of Basel. So, what's the state of the debate now? Take us to the present. Yeah. Um, well, in the in the late twentieth century, two um, two scholars. I mean, there was more and more. So, what what happened? Let me back up a little bit. So, what happened in the twentieth century is that 
because increasingly um, scholars began to recognize the weakness of the evidence. Um, and so instead of referring to um, the National Synod of Basel, um, scholars began to refer to it as the Convent of Basel. The Weseler Convent was the, the German originally. Convent just a meeting, comes from a Latin word for meeting. So it's just a, I began to describe it as the meeting at Wesel. In the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there's about five or eight different words that get used to describe the meeting. And gradually the, um, the Convent of Wesel, the Convent von Wesel in Dutch or the Weseler Convent in German um, begin to be standard. Um, and, and oftentimes it's, it, the scholars would, would put it in inverted commas or scare quotes to recognize that there really is not much evidence for it, but they continue to use it in the exact same way as if it were a founding, as if these, these articles were a founding um, document for, for either the Dutch or the German church, depending on which, um, which, uh, which side of the border they were on. In the late 20th century, two scholars, um, uh, one was an archivist in the Netherlands, a guy named Jan-Peter van Doren, and it, another one was a, a church historian in the Netherlands, called Ove Boersma. Um, uh, um, Jan-Peter van Doren is now deceased. Um, Boersma is still, um, still active um, uh, in, the, in the Netherlands. Um, they both put together uh, attempts to solve the, solve the mystery um, by, ad- by addressing the problem of the signers. And really, the, the focus of, of them, as well as as well as other as well as other scholars who address this problem, has, has centrally been about trying to figure out a way to explain how all of these people could have been in one room at the same time to sign this document. And so, in order to do that, both Fadoren um, and and Borsma um, um, pro- proposed theories that the problem was that we that the document had been misdated. And maybe even the, the location of the document, mis, uh, uh, a false location given on the document, so that if we put it in a different place in a different time, maybe we can figure out how all these people could be in one place at once. And so uh, Van Doren uh, presents the argument that it must have been in Antwerp in 1567. Borsma suggests that it probably was in Wesel in, but in 1571, not 1568, and maybe it had started, um, started being signed um, a little further uh, west, and then was was traveled around a little bit after the, after it was signed in Basel. Um, and I, I I sort of walk through the problems with this in the book, with each of these theories in the book. Um, and and I think that the the central problem, as I as I came to understand it, was that they were trying to get everyone in the same room. But if you if you abandon that idea that they're all in the same room, the problem becomes relatively simple. You look where they were at this time, and there's a relatively straightforward trajectory of the document moving um, from Wesel to Emden to London. Um, and so um, that's sort of the, the, the narrow question of where the, uh, what, what actually happened. Uh, I, I suppose the, the historiographical situation at this point is, um, I've offered a counter to uh, Van Doren and Borsma um, that, that offers a, uh, what I think is a, a much more compelling and evidence-based uh, conclusion that solves many of the problems that they had. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting to see this debate because I think your argument is is just very convincing. I, I, I'm converted and I can't imagine anyone isn't. Um, and it just makes so much sense and it, it works. Um you know, but uh, I did check the Wikipedia article and it's unclear. You're in there, but it does, it's not coming down on anything. And as we know, that's, you know, an important, <laughs> like, important marker there. Uh, anyway, 
So you do a couple important things here. Um, like you tell the story, right? And you do your historical analysis here, but you also talk about the process of telling a story, the process of how, of making the history around this event, um, the story, the story of the creation of the story. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, that's, that's new and that's, that's requiring you to think as an historian on this meta level. And do you feel like you're going to take that with you? Was that kind of a transformative yeah, process? That's, that's, well, first on the Wikipedia thing, I do hope to write an article uh, on, uh, on the, the, the afterlife of this, of this story uh, on, on Wikipedia in subsequent, uh, subsequent years, but I need to wait for more, for more evidence and more debate. But, but, but um, as for, 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 for your question, yeah, the, in the, really in the conclusion of the book, I, I set about to do two things. One is to, to think about what it is a historian does when, when, when they walk in and look at a source. And I, so I, I talk about the six versions, extant versions of the document and how differently they're archived and, and the, how the archival context shapes what kind of conclusions a historian might be able to make about that document, even though they're actually the same text. And that deeply shaped my thinking uh, as a historian, because I came to think about archival context in a really uh, much more profound and systematic way. Now, professional historians underst- have understand, and uh, I know you have this experience too, that, that we know that archives shape how a, a, an archive an archive, a user of the archive makes sense of documentation. We know that archives are not neutral. Uh, we're not naive um, when we go into archives. But as I thought about this project, I began to be much more systematic. And, and by looking at just how one doc, document is archived, be much more systematic in how I approach, uh, how I approach uh, my evidence. And, and also to be more, more systematic and thoughtful about how I interact with archivists and and tend to my relationships with archivists. I think before um, before I, I worked on this book, I I, uh, I confess I had um, sometimes a transactional relationship with archivists and librarians, and I came to realize how, in writing this book, how problematic that was. Um, and so I'm not only more systematic in my in my archival criticism um, than I used to be, um, but I'm also much more systematic about. Um, my how I build relationships with the with with colleagues who are who are with who are archivists or other kinds of record keepers, librarians, um, and other uh, other kinds of people. In addition, in the conclusion, I reflect on the the who I am as a person, my values, my background, and reflect also on the ways in which they shape how I might be interpreting this event. And um, I do that rhetorically as a way both of confessing that if I'm critiquing other people's interpretation and contextualizing them, I need to do that to myself as a responsible, responsible scholar, but also to appreciate the extent to which the inheritances that we sometimes can't see um, about the past are inheritances that are in the archive. They're inheritances that are in libraries, but they're also inheritances that are in ourselves that we need to be able to confront. Um, and so that that those lessons are meant um, are meant to help help readers who 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 might appreciate history and really appreciate want to be curious about the past, but really help them understand the the complexity, the deep complexity that goes into telling a historical narrative. 
that's about the, the archives and the evidence, yes, but also about the centuries that preceded it and the, 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 the inheritances, some of which are visible and some of which are really hard to see, the inheritances that shape how we make sense of, of the past, what kind of narratives we assign to the past, and how we can use the past to, um, to drive us into the future. It's so important. How we can use it and, and how it can really kind of cloud us as well, right? Uh, it's really important. And I think this is, an, this is a book uh, that people should read for a number of reasons, but other historians really need to read this and think about yeah, the way we practice our craft. Yeah, one of the things that I found so craft. interesting about this book is some of the, the leading historians of, of, uh, that I grew up admiring and and. And, and wanting to model myself on, they were they were using the convent of Basel in the same sort of easy um, easy way. I'll put it in air quotes and 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 just continue to use it in this way, even though they know perfectly well that there's a problem. Um, and and they are some of the most sophisticated uh, thinkers that I have ever met. Um, and so the problem is not an easy one. It's a it's a really difficult one, and and one that I think is it's worth all of us grappling with. Yeah, I, I, and there's something we like to believe, I think, despite all of us are now postmodernists to some degree, I think we like to believe that there is a truth there, there's an event, and we'll just get at that. And we won't be affected by 300 years of whatever, you know, you know, this my in my fields, maybe a little bit more about the idea of the, 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 the uh, you know, the Renaissance as an idea or something. But um, and, and that's that's ridiculous. And we like there's no reason for us to expect that as historians, we stop being uh, subject to the forces of history. But. That's right. That's right. And yet at the same time, the solution to the problem, as I as I understand it and describe it in part one of the book, is a real sort of commitment to um, uh Nineteenth century historicist principles, right? Go back to the evidence, contextualize that evidence, and and, and w- w- what I'm doing differently than other people is I'm developing a much more who say this particular problem is developing a much more broad and and rich body of contextualization of evidence around around this one piece of this what this one set of documents than than other than other uh, scholars had before. But it's not it's not the, the solution is not to abandon abandon um, you know, uh, historical research because it's, you know, it's all problematic. The solution is to double down, I think, on the historicist principles that, that, um, that uh, had been developed that, we, you know, we've, we, we've all been taught. Mm-hmm. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. So I've taken up a good bit of your time here and you do have that stack of papers, but before we go, so this is a, a 2017 publication and you have a new one this year. Yes. That's right. I do. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, um, this book is um, it's called Ruptured Lives, Refugee Crises and Historical Perspectives. It came out this year with Oxford University Press. And it's a, a much broader book than, um, than the Convent of Basel um, book. It, it looks at different kinds of refugee crises and, and moments in, in world history. And it, it attempts to try to understand the relationship between the deep assumptions that, in, that come to embed societies and individuals um, about what kinds of people ought to be living in what kinds of spaces on this planet and, and how those deep assumptions come to underpin some of the most dramatic and, and um, refugee crises in the past. And I begin the, the, the book with the refugee crisis 
that that I um, that's a focus of my own research in the Reformation and the ways in which um, uh, as the idea of Christendom falls apart in in this in this peninsula of Eurasia that we today call Europe, as the the principle of of Christendom falls apart, it's really driving um, a lot of the tumultuous uh, disorder. That, that's shaping the, the kinds of lives that I described in my previous book, The Convent of Basil. Um, but then I, I step back in this book and I think about the, the, the broader kinds of, of, of similar kinds of crises that, and, and collapsing uh, assumptions that are shaping a lot of the other refugee crises in world history. Um, so, so this is a much broader project. I'm, I'm now currently working on a new, a new book that goes back to the 16th century and tries to retell the history of the refugees, um, uh, the refugees of the 16th century, with the lessons of the Convent of Basel book um, in in mind. So try try to throw away the kinds of the kinds of all the kinds of assumptions that that shape uh, our understanding of that period, and instead rebuild a new narrative uh, of that period. This is very exciting work. Yeah, we'll talk about um, discussing ruptured lives for sure. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, your this this your next work as well. Um, that is your that's ambitious. That's these are a lot of important and big projects that you're doing. Uh, congratulations on that. I mean, perhaps I, you know you you might want to rest a little, but you know whatever. <laughs> well, uh, I really like talking about important important uh, ideas and. Um, I find a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot of meaning meaning in it. So, so I'm going to keep on writing. Thanks for talking. Yeah, you know that's the other thing that I think is if you don't if you you aren't one of us, it's hard to understand. Is it's just the archives are fun. It's so exciting. Being an historian is so cool. Uh, it's great to just go out and be an historian. All right. So thank you so much and uh, good luck with your day. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Ciao. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jana. Thank you. Tozo.